If you're still on the hunt for a sports book to call home, bet the nonstop action of March Madness with my bookie. Enter bracket contests for a chance to take home prizes of up to $25,000 or pick from a huge selection of straight bets, props, and odds boosts. Whatever your style, MyBookie makes it easy to play your way and get paid. Sign up now and take advantage of our generous welcome offer to score a massive first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. All you have to do is claim promo code MADNESS50. But the fun doesn't stop there. Get up-to-the-minute odds, free bets, and expert predictions to help you decide who to put your money on. The best part about MyBookie? You can bet on anything, anytime, from anywhere. Use promo code MADNESS50, that's MADNESS50, to secure your limited-time welcome bonus today. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and back with me today to recap Georgia's thrilling or sloppy, depending on how you are inclined to look at it. Regardless, Georgia's 24-21 win over ninth-ranked Cincinnati is my co-host Curtis, and it was. It was both a thrilling and also frustratingly sloppy game for the Dogs on New Year's Day, but Ultimately, thanks to a dominant second-half performance by the defense and just enough by the offense and special teams, we were able to pull out the victory and, man, definitely avoid the embarrassment of losing to a group of five team. No one, no Power 5 team ever wants that on their resume. And look, I mean, if, if we would have lost, I probably never would be able to watch a Cincinnati game again or even see their logo without reliving the pain of this game. Like, I'm still barely over the loss in the Sugar Bowl to West Virginia back in 2005. And now it's a little bit different because they're now a Power 5 team. But back back then, the Big East was kind of equivalent to what the AAC is now. In fact, a lot of the teams in the AAC used to be in the old Big East. And I remember for years after that game, anytime I, I even just heard the name West Virginia, like that pain just seared through my heart every single time. So I'm just, as a fan, just really glad that I personally from a personal standpoint, and able to avoid that pain, that embarrassment, which a loss to Cincinnati would have brought. But it certainly was not easy. Obviously, we, our guys showed some character, man. They showed some character in the face of adversity and dug really deep for our 10th top 10 win of the Kirby Smart tenure, holding the Bearcats to just seven points and two first downs that didn't come from penalties or a fake punt in that second half. We held them to uh, 4.2 yards for playing the second half. And really outside of the long 79-yard touchdown run on that opening drive of the second half for Cincinnati, we held them to 43 yards of total offense and 1.5 yards per play in the second half. Absolutely dominant. And obviously, look, I know the long run happened. I know it happened, right? You can't just say, well, you know, outside of that, because it did happen. But um, what happened on that play is that they caught us in a, in a strong slant. We were slanting on that play, and they caught us in the perfect play call. And uh, I just bring that up to say, like, yes, they had that run played. It happened. But 
really outside of that, they had no sustained success whatsoever against our defense in the second half, which allowed us to fight our way back and ultimately prevail in this game after Jack Podlesny injected some ice into his veins and just nailed that 53-yard game winner. But Curtis, we will get to all the specifics of this game here in just a few minutes. I promise we'll get there. But first, like I just want to start here. We hear all the time about how bowl games outside of the playoffs don't matter anymore. And in many ways, I, I actually agree with that for the most part. I mean, I've, I've been talking for weeks now about how I think we need to expand the cultural playoffs like right now immediately. I know I don't get to say that. No one listens to me. But for the health of the game, we need to expand the cultural playoffs immediately because the value of these non-playoff bowl games has been reduced dramatically. And that's been trending in that direction for years now. But it has certainly accelerated over the past couple of years with the advent of the cultural playoff and this uh, increasing trend of, of opt-outs in the postseason if you're not in the, in the playoffs. So that narrative, or it may be even that reality about these non-playoff bowl games really just not having much value, that is out there. But you wouldn't have known that by the way our team celebrated that win and the way that I personally felt after that win. I'm sure a lot of other Dolph fans out there shared those feelings that, that I had after that game, that, that euphoria of that win, that thrilling win. So, Kurt, with that in mind, like how big was that Peach Bowl win, or are we just making too much out of it right now? I think it was a huge win uh, just for the fact that, I, honestly, after watching the game, I think Cincinnati could have honestly given Notre Dame a pretty dang good game. You know, they were one of these teams that came in as all you heard about on the broadcast was a chip on their shoulder. They had something to prove. We had opt-outs. They really didn't experience the opt-out problem like we did. And yet we still went out there, and not only did we win, but I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was it was our first come-from-behind win by 10-plus points since 2013. So to me, I think that was a big testament to our team and their character in general. By the way, they just didn't give up. Yeah, I think it was a it was a big win, man. Look, like I'm not going to sit here and make it out to be like it was a playoff game and put us in the national championship game like we saw in 2017, like in the Rose Bowl. I'm not, I'm not going to make it out to be like that. But this is still a really good win for our program. Uh, look, this is a top 10 team. Say what you want about Cincinnati. This is a top 10 team. And Curtis, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think Cincinnati could give a team like Notre Dame all they could handle. I, I, I told you guys coming into that game, respect Cincinnati. They are a good football team. I'm not saying that every group of five team is that good or that they could hold up consistently in the SEC week in and week out. But that is a good team that in a one-game scenario could absolutely beat, especially with all the opt-outs that we were that we were facing. And we didn't have as many opt-outs as I thought we might have, but we still had the account up. It was seven starters that didn't didn't play in that game. So this is a big win to be able to pull out another top 10 win. Like I said, this is Kirby's – this is the 10th top 10 win for Kirby Smart since he's taken over this job in five seasons. That's on average two a year, guys. Kirby Smart's getting it done, no matter what you want to say about the guy. But it, it was look, it, like, this kind of game is what can be like. That's what you have to use bowl games for now. If you're not in the playoffs, bowl games are a springboard to next year, and it's a totally different feel going into the off season when you win a game that that last game of the year, that bowl game, as opposed to when you lose them. I mean, think back to 2018, Curtis, when we lost the Drew Bowl to Texas. How are you feeling after that game? Uh, pretty bad, and honestly, I think that's one thing that stuck, stuck out to me the most is I was happy to win just in the fact also that you don't have to hear all offseason, the Power 5 narrative, and all that just that entire narrative that you see someone like Florida's going to have to deal with where they didn't show up. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, I mean, it 
kind of hangs over everything you do in the offseason. Look, like we're going to recruit well no matter what. Like losing Cincinnati, if we lost that game, that doesn't mean that that was going to stop our recruiting momentum. We were going to like lose any specific recruits over one game. But games like that, if you start losing games like that, like you know, you go back to the 2018 Sugar Bowl, you lose a game in Cincinnati, then it starts to kind of build a, a reputation, a narrative starts to emerge about your team in the postseason. And that's just not something you want hanging over your program. So to get a, a win over a top 10 team, to basically not have to live with our rivals, n- not that it matters what it says, but it does get under your skin, right? Like to not to not to live with our rivals forever, for infinity into the future, making fun of us for losing to a group of five team. That's that, it's a good feeling, right? So uh, I think it can be a springboard into next year, kind of hit the off season with momentum. And I know you could say, well, if you lose a game like that, that can motivate your team going to the off season. But I would much rather win that game and have the momentum carried into the offseason as opposed to losing that game and kind of feeling dejected and trying to dig deep to find that motivation. So, yeah, I think this is an, a good program win. Um, it leads us in the right direction heading into 2021. When we Obviously, I know it's nine months from now, but have a huge game. Uh, if, if all things stay the same, we don't have a, another season impacted by COVID. We actually played non-conference games. It leads into a huge game to open the 2021 season in Charlotte against Clemson. So yeah, I think this is definitely a big win, man. I'm, I'm with you there, but um, all right, Kurt, for the rest of this episode, Curtis and I, we're, we're going to go back and forth trading our takeaways and our observations from the victory over Cincinnati. Like we have done, uh, I guess the last couple of the, uh, recap episodes of the season, we've kind of found this to be, we've toyed around with some different ways to, to do these recap episodes, but so far we've kind of settled on this to be the best way for us to cover as much of what happened in the game as we possibly can in this one episode. So Curtis, I'm gonna let you open it up. My friend, where do you want to start? Uh, I'm going to start with opting out does not always benefit your draft stock. Yeah, dude. Like that's actually that's the top thing I have my list. My list too is not necessarily that it doesn't benefit your draft stock. You're absolutely right. It does not. Like, like look, I'm not an NFL guy necessarily, but how much do you think Aziz improved his draft stock with that performance on on a New Year's Day? Um, I really think he did improve it. Uh, and that's the thing that sticks out to me the most is like. People like, uh, especially uh, DJ Daniel and some of these guys, like they say they want to opt out so they can get ready for the senior bowl. Like senior bowls where they can make or break getting drafted and making some money and things like that. But in my opinion, I think uh, Aziz did more for his draft stock on game day than what he could have done if going into the Sugar Bowl. Or I mean, or going into the Senior Bowl because for the most part, they know what he can do athletic wise and things like that. But to me, what what uh, gals and things look for the most is film. And doing it on film to me is more important than just doing it out of practice. I, I, I tend to agree with that. And look, again, I, I'm not an NFL guy. I watch NFL, you know, as a casual fan. I'm a college guy all the way. But, you know, you're right. The, 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 the senior bowl is run by the NFL, essentially, right? I mean, you've got the scouts there. You've got GMs there. They're all watching you. They, they talk to you during the week and they watch practice, the game, and all that. But I'm with you, like an actual game where you can put film out there against a top 10 team where you just flat out dominated and were a major factor in why your team won. I think in a lot of ways that could, that could, I would take, I would say that would take precedent for me if I was an NFL scout over what I saw during the, the senior bowl practice week. Now again, I'm not an NFL scout. I'm not necessarily an NFL guy. So I don't know exactly how much stock they put into those things. But for me, if you're just talking about me, I would put way more stock into what did this guy do on the field of play? What film did he put out there? So I'm with you there. And so for my first thing, I'm going to stick with that theme, Curtis, of the opt-outs. And I just want to start here, man. Um, I, I just want to give a huge shout out to all the seniors who uh, – by the way, the winningest senior class in Georgia history, I guess technically they tied for the winningest senior class in Georgia history, but we would have had that 
we would have beaten Vanderbilt, obviously, if we would play that game and they would have had that title. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to him anyway. And just the guys who did not opt out. I know we had a couple guys opt out, Eric Stokes, uh Ben Cleveland, Monty Rice. I'm not as upset with I'm not upset with anybody, but Ben and Monty was more like they had been battling some injuries and they've been playing hurt for a while. So that makes more sense. But guys like DJ Daniel, Eric Stokes, love those guys, appreciate everything they did. But they opted out. And the guys who didn't opt out, I just want to say thank you, man. Like it's just it's I think it says so much about those guys, number one, about the character of those guys that they didn't necessarily put themselves first. Like if you're putting yourself first, and we've talked all season about the, the me culture at different points throughout the season. And uh I think that's kind of overtaken just society in general, but certainly sports as well. But these guys, I think I'll say it's been my best interest to protect my, you know, financial future by not playing in this one game. But, you know, sometimes you see these guys like Aziz Ojolari and Tyson Campbell. So, you know what? I, I'm going to put it out there with my brothers. Those guys, they fought. They've sweat. They, they've bled for this program just like we have side by side. And it's not fair to them for me to sit here and opt out and leave them hanging. So, look, I, I'm not going to necessarily fault those guys to opt it out. But I think it does say a lot about those guys who chose not to opt out when they had every reason to from a financial perspective. So I think it says a lot about those guys, the type of players you recruit. And also it says a lot about the culture that Kirby Smart has built. Like I know that – People are always going to criticize coaches for different things. That's just the nature of the beast. But I think Kirby Smart has built a winning culture in Athens, and that's going to carry over into the future. And I just, I'm just so proud of those guys. So proud of those guys that did not opt out. They deserve a lot of credit for that. And like you said, Kirsch, not only did a lot of those guys play, but they, like Aziz Ojolari, made game-changing plays. And totally, a guy like Aziz completely helped himself out here uh, going into the uh, the Senior Bowl week. So big shout out to those guys, the seniors, guys that didn't opt out. Love you guys. Appreciate everything, and I wish you the absolute best in the future. But uh, all right, Kurt, what's your second takeaway? Um, over aggressiveness really hurt Cincinnati. Uh, at the time, you didn't realize how big it was, but how big was that targeting call on the offensive lineman making that dumb, just dumb penalty where uh, when he hit Tyson Campbell, especially late after the play? How big that and how much that hurt them, especially late in the game when they're jumping off sides on short third downs and you know opening it up for Aziz also yeah I'm, I'm actually that was one of my takeaways I'll throw I'll, since you brought it up I'll go ahead and throw that in there as well look I think would you say would you agree with me that the Tyreek Stevenson play Kirby said in the postgame press conference he thinks that was the play of the game I'm I'm inclined to agree with him do you think that was the play of the game Tyreek Stevenson there on third um, and two I do think it is just because the fact it saved the game some of these other plays like uh where Aziz or some of these other big plays helped but that was the one that without a doubt definitely saved the game yeah if you're looking at what happened there like with the Tyree Stevenson play like I first off I think Tyree Stevenson played like he didn't play a great overall game like he gave up some completions some and he's done that throughout the year too much too much I'm still high on him and what he can be but he's still got to improve uh, I think he has good ball skills just got to make a play when it's there to be made kind of what we saw from Tyson Campbell early in his career but that play, uh, what was it? It was third and two on Cincinnati's final drive. I guess technically got one more drive, one play, then when Aziz got the sack for the safety. But really, technically, their final full drive. And on that play, this third and two, everybody's thinking they're going to run, but they decided to throw the football. They're playing to win. I don't necessarily fault them for that. You play to win. I, I, I get the call. And it looked like they were trying to run a smash concept where you run somebody in the flat and then you run kind of a, a, a corner route behind that. But it was kind of a strange execution. The tight end Wiley kind of turned up the field on a wheel route. And I don't think he was supposed to be there. I think he ran the wrong route because Tyree Stevenson was covering him. And he would not have been anywhere near in position to peel off of Wiley to make a play on the ball in that situation. But I'm glad he was. I'm glad. It, I mean, maybe it was designed that way. I just I have a hard time thinking it was designed that way. I think he probably ran, ran the wrong route. 
But Stevenson had the awareness to break off his man to make the play. And I think it was probably the play of the game. There were multiple plays that were big. I mean, Aziz's uh, sack fumble was a big play as well that set up a field goal in the fourth quarter. But going back to what you were saying, Curtis, when James Hudson, the left tackle, the all-conference left tackle for Cincinnati, when he got ejected, I think I would argue that was maybe not the biggest play, but the biggest moment of that game when he got ejected for targeting and was replaced by the big German Lawrence Mintz. Because after that moment, we feasted on Lawrence Mintz and we're getting after Desmond Ritter. We had five sacks after that moment once Mets has to come in the lineup and after Hudson got ejected. All three of Aziz Ojolari's sacks came after Hudson was ejected, including that, that forced fumble in the fourth quarter. Mets had three false starts. He was seeing ghosts, hearing footsteps, because he just couldn't handle what was coming after him. We had eight sacks and all five sacks coming after that point in the second half. So I think that might have been the biggest move. Because after that, I mean, I know they had that long run to open the second half, but they just couldn't do anything. And a big part of that, yeah, sure, we stopped their run game, but we were just making life hell on earth for Desmond Ritter every single time he dropped back. So I think you make an argument that that was potentially the biggest moment. It wasn't necessarily a play, but like the biggest moment of the game was when Hudson got ejected. Because that really, really – we already taken away the running game, but that just took away any hope that they had to even try to throw the football after that point because we were just feasting on Mets once he was thrown in the lineup for sure. Uh, I agree with you there. Uh, all right, I'll go with another one here. Uh, to me, I just alluded to this a second ago, and I told you guys this coming into the game as well. I felt like the key to victory in this game, there's always multiple keys to any game, but I thought the biggest key was stopping Cincinnati's run game, and I thought we did an outstanding job of that. We held them to 99 yards, total rushing. Yes, I know they had that long uh, 79-yard touchdown run in the second play. I think it was the second play of the second half. But outside of that, I mean, we held them to 20 yards on 26 carries outside of that play. And like we've struggled in the secondary at times this year. But if we can continue to make teams one-dimensional, we're going to continue to be very, very good on defense. I mean, imagine how bad it could be in the second. Like when we've had some issues in secondary this year, but imagine how bad it could be moving forward um, and how bad it could have been on, on uh, New Year's Day against Cincinnati if we weren't able to completely stifle the run game with, with our front seven. So, uh, I think we were able to, for the most part, stop the running. Yes, I know they had the big play, but we were able to keep them from having any sort of like sustained success on the ground. And that was absolutely the key to the game because without, like I told you guys, that Desmitter was a good, solid quarterback. But if we were able to take away their ground game, there was no way that they that he was going to be able to sit back there in the pocket and consistently be us. Even the plays that he made in the passing, you know, that touchdown right before halftime. That was when he escaped the pocket. If we were able to keep him in the pocket and stop the run game, which we were for the most part, there was no way they were going to be able to consistently score in our defense. And it kind of played out that way. So to me, being able to stop the run was absolutely the key. I, I felt like that was the key coming to the game, and it played out that way as well. All right, Kurt, where do you want to take us next, man? I know that Xavier Trustman is a redshirt fresh, fresh freshman that doesn't have a lot of snaps under his belt. Uh, but I definitely will say I do not think he's the long-term answer at left tackle. Oh, I agree with that. I'm going to take it a step further with you here, Kerr. I don't think either one of the tackles that played on New Year's Day, whether it's Truss at left tackle or McLennan at right tackle. I know McLennan's played most of the year. I don't think either one of those guys are the answer long-term at those positions. Am I off base there? Uh, No, you're not. I think if anyone's going to play next year and still hold their job, it will be McLennan. Um, But if I'm going to be honest, I'm expecting to see potentially two new tackles next year. In in my opinion, Broderick Jones and both of them. Amarius Mims. 
Yeah, and, and there's a couple of options out there. Broderick Jones, Amarius Mims. I mean, Tate Radlich, I know he, he, he's played, he started out tackle, he's played some guard. And look, I don't want to completely bury Truss and McClendon because those guys are still very young. Truss hasn't played much at all this year. If any and, of them are to hold it, it'll be McClendon. Yeah, and, and McClendon, I, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to kill him because he has had moments this year where he's played well. I, but I don't think he's played that great down the stretch. And I thought he was. He was he played very poorly. Let's just say I thought he played very poorly against Cincinnati, and it wasn't just him. Obviously, Trust had some issues. Well, Warren Erickson had some issues. I mean, Warren Erickson's pro football focus grade was only a fifty-one. I mean, I thought Erickson played terrible in that game, and, I, and he played pretty well up to that point in relief of Trey Hill. But man, like I, I mean, do you, I have questions about Erickson at center? Like, do you think feel like he's the answer at center after what you saw on on the, or in the Peach Bowl? Uh, no, honestly, I have to say, I, what shocked me the most was how slow he was getting off the ball. I mean, he was just like, I mean, part of it was the confusion with the three, three, five defense, but he got whipped too much. You're right. There was just the the lack of of athleticism off the ball. I, get, I, I was, I mean, he's played pretty well at times when he's come in in relief of Trey Hill, but man, he was like he was lost. Oh, what was that? Was it Saturday or whatever day that was? Friday, whatever day that was, he was lost in that game. So I don't, I don't know, man. Like. And let me say this too. Uh, here's my next observation since you brought up the offensive line. I, because I'm curious what you think about this. Chris. I think the coaches made the wrong decision to shuffle the offensive line around. You know what I mean? Like we were going to be without two starters regardless coming into that game. But when you move Salyer to guard and you move Schaefer to right guard, you move both those guys who started at different positions all year long. When you move them to different spots, in addition to already having two new starters in that game, you almost in some weird way have like four new guys because the two guys that had been starting all year, well, now they're playing new positions. So it doesn't necessarily completely translate. There was very little continuity there. And look, I I know it's, it's never ideal under any circumstances to have to shuffle the offensive line around like that. But especially when you're playing against a three, three, five team that stunts a ton and brings guys from different places and really just generally thrives off of confusing the offensive line. I think when you're playing a defense like that and you shuffle the offense around the offensive line around like that, along with having two new stars, to me, that's a recipe for a long day for the quarterback. And we kind of saw that play out. So, Kurt, are you with me there? Like, would you have shuffled that in retrospect? Not to the severity we did. Um, I think that's the only thing that really bothered me, like you said, is we were moving practically everyone around except for Warren McClendon. And I think that was a problem, too, like you said, especially with someone that was stunting and doing a lot of like what uh, Cincinnati did, similar to how Mississippi State was able to uh, stop us, that I don't think that was the correct answer. Hey, look, I, I, yeah, we're going to have two new stars. I get that. So you're going to have you're going to have Erickson at center. That's going to happen. And I guess what the calculus was is, okay, who is our next best guy off the bench, right? Like, who's our next best offensive lineman? And I guess they decided that it was Xavier Trust. And Trust is, is a tackle right now. That's what he plays. So if we felt he was our next best lineman, we were going to put him in. That's why you cross-train guys. You put him in a tackle, and then you have guys like like Schaefer and Salyer that have a little versatility, can move around a little bit. So I, I on some level, I understand that. But again, when you're playing a 3-3-5 defense that thrives off of confusing the offensive line, creating uh, looks that they're that they're not used to seeing. We, and guys, we've already seen it this year against Mississippi State. We saw how much our, our normal offensive line struggled against that 3-3-5 with all the confusion they were able to create with the penetration in the backfield, guys coming from all over the place, stunning left and right, twisting, all that kind of stuff. 
So when you're playing defense like that, do you really want to take two stars that played all year and put them in new positions? I, I just I question that strategy. And look, I'm not the one who gets paid millions of dollars to do this. I understand those coaches know a lot more about football than I do. But I think if you look back in retrospect and say, I mean, think about how many times that we saw guys on the offensive line just standing around, looking around aimlessly, like not blocking anyone while the running back quarterback is getting harassed in the backfield. Like we, when we actually knew who to block and got hats on defenders, we actually got movement because I told you guys coming in this game, they were an undersized defensive front that relied on basically what Mississippi State relied on, getting penetration in the backfield, using their quickness and creating confusion up front. That's what they rely on. So when we were able to figure out what they were doing and knew who to block, we were fine. But when you have guys moving all over the offensive line, you're shuffling guys around, two new starters, moving guys to different positions, that is just going to create even more confusion. And I just I got so tired of just seeing guys standing around, just not even blocking anyone, looking around like, oh, my God, like, who am I supposed to block while your quarterback is back there getting his head ripped off? Uh, that got frustrating for me. So to me, I, I think – if, I think, honestly, if you ask our coaches, if they had to go back and do all over again, I think they might have made a different choice there. But it is what it is. Unfortunately, it didn't cost us a game. But uh, certainly, I, I think that was a poor coaching decision, in, in my opinion, there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, Kurt, what you got next, man? Well, going off, just last thing on the offensive line is this offseason, especially this fall or this spring practice and fall practice, if we have them, is going to be extremely competitive. Uh, It's the one thing I want to touch on is, it's going to be wide open, especially if people like Trey Hill, even if potentially Jamari Sawyer goes pro, there's just the possibilities in the competition offensive line is going to be very uh, something to definitely watch. Yeah, and you and I, we got that question already in the mailbag a couple, maybe a month or so ago, a couple of weeks ago, about like what do we think the offensive line is going to look like? And, and we gave our answers, but like it's so hard to know. There's just too much time left to know what it's going to look like. There's so many possibilities and there's a lot of guys that are going to be competing heavily for playing time. So I think you're exactly right. Like of all the positions to watch on the team going to spring practice, going to fall camp, I think it's the offensive line because it can look very, very different. I'm, I'm hearing right now that Jamari Sire is looking more and more like he's going to return next year. It, but what I've heard is that he might actually be moved to guard full time because that's probably, that's what I've said all along. Like he can play tackle, but I think he's a better guard prospect. I think that's what he's going to play in the NFL. So give him a chance to kind of get a season of that on tape. And then, but that opens up the tackles. Like, like you said, after what we saw from Xavier Truss, I know it's one game, but like, do we feel really confident there? Are we going to give a guy like Marius Mims who's physically ready? Is he going to be able to come in and compete right away? But there's going to be a, a lot of competition there. I mean, I'm very interested definitely to, to see how that plays out. Uh, all right, let me go. Let's see what I want to go to next here. All right, let's just go here. Let, let's bring it up, man. Uh, Kurt, what did you make of JT Daniels' produ- his play on, on uh, Friday? Um, I thought it wasn't perfect, uh, but I think a lot of it had to do also with the receivers. He, he was missing on the deep ball, which he had done well, but I think we have to take into account just how much pressure he was under. You're talking about, especially with the way the stunts were. He wasn't getting – there weren't many times he had a clean pocket to throw, and I think that really affected him. Um, I think it affected our whole offense, but I also think you have to take into account people like, uh, in my opinion, Trey Burton had a pretty bad game for his standards. He couldn't – he was having trouble tracking the ball in the – in the dome or in the Mercedes Benz roof. And I think that really affected him because 
there was two times I think Burton could have made a play on deep ball, especially that one uh, with like 20 seconds to go. He throws that ball down the sideline. Burton just had kind of stopped running. I don't know what he was doing, but that had the potential to make a big play on that. So I just think there was it just wasn't smooth on the whole offensive in the passing attack, even though you wouldn't realize it by watching the game. But JT Daniels still goes out there and throws for over 390 yards. Yep, exactly. That, that's my point here is that did JT Daniels play his best game? Absolutely not. I think, I mean, probably his worst game. I know it's only four starts, but probably his worst of his four starts uh, down the stretch here this season. But you're exactly right, Curse. Even though he didn't play particularly well, he still threw for nearly 400 yards, completed nearly 69% of his passes, and averaged 10.3 yards per attempt. So if those are the numbers and the production that we're going to get from a quarterback when he plays his worst game of the year, we're in pretty good shape, right? Exactly. That's the thing. Like, there were some throws out there, especially the pick to pickings. Um, and then the two point pass, I thought was a pretty poor pass for his standards. But yet, he still throws for 392. I mean, what else? I mean, what did you make of that interception, that, the, the throw to pickings there? Was that more of a miscommunication or just a poor throw? I think it's a poor throw because in that situation, when you're throwing that pass pattern, usually you try to throw it high in a way to where if your guy doesn't catch it, no one does. It looked like he was trying to – I mean, I, it, from, I went back and watched that replay about 25 times to try to figure out what was going on there. Because when I, when I saw it live, I thought like I, I thought it was just a miscommunication. But going back and watching, I, it looks like Pickens is looking for a back shoulder. I think he was expecting the back shoulder. And I think I think that JT was trying to throw it back shoulder. Now, you got, go back and watch that play, guys. He was getting pressure in his face. So he had a, it was a, a quick split-second decision to throw that ball. He couldn't really step into it. So I think that that certainly impacted that pass as well, which you don't, won't hear many people say. But if you watch it closely, go back and watch it. You'll see what I'm talking about. But the bottom line is, I think it was a poor throw. I think he was trying to throw a back shoulder. And if you're throwing that back shoulder, he threw that ball way too far inside. Pickens really had no chance to make a play on that ball. So, yes, I would say that's a poor throw. Um, but he was getting some pressure in his face there. I would honestly, I would prefer him probably just eat that ball because I, I don't think that, that ball was gonna have a chance to complete it with the pressure he was getting in his face there. But I do think that one that one was on him. There were also a couple of balls in this game where um, he he missed some of the deep shots that he had been hitting previously. I, I don't I don't think there are a ton of poor decisions that he made this game. I really don't think there are a ton of those. Maybe a few here and there. But I just I honestly I think the issue in this game he is that he just wasn't quite as accurate down the field as he had been. But here's the thing, guys. He had basically set an impossible standard for himself. Like when you come out in that first game against Mississippi State in his first start and you do what he did, basically being almost flawless down the field, I mean, you're kind of setting this impossible standard where everyone expects you to make every single deep throw. But guys, there's a reason we call those low percentage throws because those are the toughest throws to complete down the field like that. And now he missed some. There was one to Arian Smith that he underthrew pretty badly. It probably could have been a touchdown. There was one to Jermaine Burton. Where, uh, I think you know, one you were talking about, Curse, where Burton had trouble tracking it. And yeah, Burton had trouble tracking that one. But he all the the ball, like he with the ball where that ball was placed, Burton didn't really have a chance to make a play on that ball. Uh, he, and Burton had about three steps on the defense there. That, sh- that should have been a touchdown. So he missed that. But it's still, I would as we were saying, even the ones that he missed. He also hit a couple of those as well, which we were just simply not hitting any of them prior to JT Daniels taking over that that starting job. So, no, it wasn't his best game um, from an accuracy standpoint down the field. But again, I think he kind of set this impossible standard for himself. And you're exactly right, Curtis. He faced a lot more pressure in this game than he had in any previous game. I mean, he was running for his life. He had no run game for the second time. I mean, I guess – 50% of his stars, he's basically had no run game to work with and still threw for I mean, 400 for one of them against Mississippi State and almost 400 in this game. So I think mean, it's the second game where he had no run game and, and completely had to bail us out. Um, wasn't as accurate down the field, 
But uh, I still think, I mean, the, did you see anything? Let me ask you this, Chris. Did you see anything from JT Daniels on Friday against Cincinnati that gave you cause for concern heading into 2021? Well, honestly, uh, the one thing that stood out to me the most is he got abused that entire game. Yeah, especially on that biggest drive, he still went down there, took the checkdowns, and took the plays that were open to him instead of trying to make the big play to go for the win and potentially throwing a pick like you've seen a lot of people do in those type of situations. Yep, absolutely. I want to bring up another thing. Again, I'm not trying to say that he played the best game ever. He did not. There's one thing that I picked up on that uh, I don't know. I haven't heard anyone mention him, but so after Aziz's sack, right? So we're going down there. We're getting. We're trying to score a touchdown, but. At that point, we were still in range. He hadn't had the sack where he fumbled. Well, I guess he was trying to throw. I thought it was a forward pass, but they called it a fumble, whatever. Um, but prior to that, there was a play. If you remember, Kurt, you remember when he threw the ball to the back of the end zone? You remember that play? Oh, uh, yeah, on that drive, yeah. It was like the uh, first down play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were, we were, I think we were in the red zone at that point. And he, he almost immediately throws the ball out of the end zone. Like he wasn't getting pressure. He just threw out the out of the back of the end zone. You might be wondering, like, why did why did you throw that ball away? Why didn't you give the play time to develop? Go back and watch that play, guys. If you have it on replay, Jermaine Burton hadn't he thought it was a run play. Jermaine Burton did not, he was not running around. He was going to block a linebacker on that play. And so I think what Daniels was thinking on that play was he saw that happen and said, well, even if we complete this pass, it's going to be a, an offensive pass interference. You're probably going to call that, and that's going to move us back and take us out of a, a potential for it. Because at that time, we were still we were still looking like we could possibly score a touchdown and take the lead on that drive. So he threw the ball out of the, out of the uh, back of the end zone there really quickly because I think he saw that Jermaine Burton was clueless and did not know what he was doing on that play and did not want to get the offensive pass interference. So to me, that is a really, really sharp play. If that's indeed what happened, and I think that's exactly what happened. I went back and watched that play multiple times again. If that's indeed what happened, that's a really sharp play from a quarterback who's only got four starts on the year. Because, I mean, look, if, if that's offensive pass interference, now all of a sudden it's what's first and 20, and now you might just be settling for a field goal. So now ultimately we end up having to settle for a field goal anyway, but at that time we didn't know that. So he did, like, he wasn't perfect. I think it was probably his poorest game from an accuracy standpoint. But he also did a lot of really, really good things as well. And I, I am not worried at all about JT Daniels. I feel really confident about him heading into the 2021 season. All right, Kurt, where are you going next, man? Um, I'm going to – I may not – I know I'm not the only one in uh, Dog Nation that's going to think this, but I have to admit how insufferable it is to watch a game on ESPN that's not a primetime game. Um, oh, God. Yeah. It was absolutely insufferable. All you heard was the chip on the shoulder for Cincinnati. And then throughout the game, you have them showing, oh, how great and physical the Cincinnati defense was, showing replays. And they continuously show the replay of where the guy jumps off sides and then, you know, clotheslines JT Daniels like they're out there making great plays. Yet that was a penalty. That what do you mean, JT Daniels' face mask off? He had to go out for a play? Exactly. Like they, yeah. they commit yeah. a penalty where they jump off sides. And yet for the rest of the game, ESPN hypes it up at how great their defense is. And I'm like, it's just so insufferable to watch games on ESPN that when that I just had to say that when that new contract starts, hopefully they get some better announcing because it is difficult to watch a game, especially when you're not the primetime game and you're stuck with some of these substandard announcers. It's almost better to watch the game on mute. I think Fox does a much better job, honestly, with their TV, with their football broadcast than ESPN does these days. I really believe that. Uh, it depends on the broadcast. There's some really good ones for ESPN that I really do enjoy. But Mark Jones is not one of them. I'll just say that. Mark Jones, no. <laughs> not my favorite uh, college football broadcaster. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, depending on what broadcast group you get, it can be it can absolutely be insufferable. There's no doubt there. Um, all right, so let me go to another one here. I'm gonna go, let's go with this. So, obviously, we didn't win this game. We know how it all played out, right? We had this thrilling come-from-behind win, as you laid out, Curtis. 
And and we made some really key plays, especially on defense, to, to make that happen, whether it's Tyree Stevenson with that third down play on that final drive, or what I consider their final drive, or Azizo Jalari with the sack fumble, all that, all t- big plays, right? But Cincinnati also helped us, man. They helped us on that last drive with really p- poor clock management. There were two separate plays on that drive where they're basically just trying to milk the clock. There were two separate plays where they stopped it. One of them, they stopped it with 12 seconds left in the clock with the clock running. And another one, they stopped it with 10 seconds left on the clock with the clock running. Kerb, did you catch that, man? Yeah, I did. I thought that, the, um, I mean, outside of the aggressive play call, I thought they were yeah very poor time management, uh, just the way they handle things in general. Yeah, I went and crunched the numbers. So here's how it went down. So there were two plays that they snapped, one with 12 seconds, one with 10 seconds when you're trying to milk the clock. That's unacceptable. There has to be no more than two seconds on the clock, preferably one, before you snap the ball when you're trying to milk the clock. There's, and I, it's unfathomable to me that a veteran quarterback in that situation would not understand that. And that his coaches on the sideline going into that drive would not make a point and say, hey, do not snap the ball prematurely. It's just unfathomable to me that that, that was the case. So they punt the ball after Tyree Stevenson makes that, that great play, probably the play of the game, with one minute and 34 seconds on the clock, okay? Well, let's say, like, I'm, I don't have an issue with them necessarily going for the, the pass there on third and two because they were being aggressive. You're playing to win. I don't hate that necessarily because we were the way we were stuffing their run, they probably weren't going to get a first down if they run the football. But if you run the football, that takes at least probably another 35 or so seconds off the clock if they run it there. And uh, then you have the 20 seconds. So let's go back to the, the one play. They snapped it with 12 seconds. One play they snapped it with 10 seconds. So let's say they snap each of those plays with one second on the clock. Well, put that together. It's 11 seconds and nine seconds. That's 20 seconds of, of, of plays right there where they snapped it too early. And then you take six seconds off for the punt. Well, if you take all of that time off, 35 seconds, if you run the ball on third down, 20 seconds on the plays where they snapped it too early, six seconds off for the punt. Then instead of getting the ball with a minute, 28 seconds on our, in no timeouts, on our own 20-yard line. We get the ball at our own 20 with 33 seconds left and no timeouts. And if that's the case, then we would not be able – we had, would not have had enough time to take the checkdowns that we took on that drive to march us down the field to set up that game-winning 53-yard kick by Jack Podlesny. There simply would not have been not enough time. I don't think we win that football game. If they don't set the ball early on those two, on those two plays, if they run the football – and, uh, and then punt the ball to us and get the ball on our 20-yard line with 33 seconds, I think they win the football game. So, yeah, look, we made the plays when we had to, but they also kind of helped us there. So, thanks, Luke Fickle, Cincinnati. Appreciate it, guys. All right, where are you going next, Kurt? Um, next, I think we're definitely going to need a shakeup in the defensive secondary. Uh, you mentioned how Stevenson made the play of the game, but throughout the entire game, I just noticed how, honestly, I don't believe he's the answer. He To me, he struggled this year all at star, and especially at cornerback. He plays way too flat-footed. He can't make plays on the ball. Um, and just out, and then if Campbell leaves, that we're, there's definitely going to be some shakeups there. We're going to need some people like, especially Keely Ringo, to come in and be healthy and be able to take on that role. And we're going to have to find someone else who can play at that cornerback position. Because uh, right now, I do not believe that we have any starting corners that have seen PT this year. So yeah, it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens with the transfer portal if we try to get a veteran cornerback that's in the that's on the transfer market. And we'll see what happens. I mean, it's got to be somebody out there. But uh, I'm certainly sure that Kirby and, and company are looking very closely at that. I are you giving up on Tyree Stevenson? I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm ready to give up on him yet. Um, unless we make a coaching change, I am because to me he has taken a step back this year with the way he's his coverage skills and to me that's very worrisome you can't expect this guy especially to take on a role at especially one of your corner positions to try to lock down the side of the field 
when he's struggled all year in pass coverage. And to me, he's a huge liability. To Honestly, in, in the Peach Bowl, I thought Latavi, uh, Latavius Brini played a better star than what we've seen from Tyree Stevenson the entire year. Yeah, I'm, we're going to talk about Brini here in a second. I'm not ready to give up on Stevenson yet. You're, everything you said about Stevenson is correct. Like, he has not been as – he has not been good enough. Now, playing playing in the slot, playing that star defender position is tough because guys have two-way goes. You're on the sideline to work with. It's tough for anyone. Like, there's not many guys that defend well that can shut down anybody from the, from that slot defender position. It's just really tough today with, with the rules and, having the, and not having the uh, the sideline there. Guys have two-way goes and, and just the nature of those guys. It's tough. And, I, and he's, I like his physicality. I think, he, I think he's a better fit at star than he is at corner. I think he like he's shown decent ball skills. That he it's just inconsistent. He just like bottom line is guys are running open against him far too often. You're exactly right about that. But I think he has the athleticism. He has the physicality to be better. So I'm not quite ready to give up give up on him yet. But he certainly has to improve. There's no doubt there. And you mentioned Latavius Brini, Curtis. Do you think this guy is going to be a, a a serious contender for a starting spot next year? Especially at the star position, I think he is. The guy played with such great physicality. And honestly, I think he's better in Stevenson in pass defense for the because of his, his length. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest yeah. things that hurts Tyreek Stevenson is he's so compact. Yeah, he's able to get it on guys' chest, but the guys are able to make the plays because he doesn't have length. Um, and and honestly, I've more have watched Alabama this year. I like what they've been doing is taking some of these younger guys that could probably start at cornerback really early and putting them in there because they have better cover skills. And that's what we're going to have to do as star as teams go with these hybrid tight ends and spread offenses. You're going to have to have – like the physicality is great when you're coming up and stopping the run, but more than likely your your star guy is on the field for cover skills, and we're not getting that out of star this year between Mark Webb and Tyreek Stevenson. Yeah, that's one of my issues. Like if I have an issue with what we do schematically on defense, I said this a couple of times, is that we put – I know this sounds crazy, but I think we put too much of an emphasis on stopping the run. And we're dominant against the run. That's great. But it doesn't matter when you go against Alabama and Florida who just throw the ball over the field – and you're not allowing your pass rushers to pin their ears back and go after the passer. You've got these stars, these guys playing star that, yeah, they, they, they're, they're kind of hybrid E that they they can cover some, but they're also physical enough to hold up against the run. And I, I know that used to be the way you would structure your defense, but with how offenses are creating mismatches against those guys with, with the slot receivers and some of the tight ends now, I, I, I think you have to change your mindset there. Like, guy like Malachi Moore, you mentioned, like Malachi Moore, Alabama, like he's a true cornerback. And I think that is the way we've got to start going in the future. I, I would certainly advocate that. I, I'm with you there for sure. Brini, um, I think he's, he's great in run support, man. He's aggressive, made some great plays in the ball there on some of those those quick passes to the outside, kind of blew up some of those passes. Um, but I need to see more from him in coverage. I'm not saying he can't do it. I just haven't seen him try to cover enough right now for me to say, oh, yeah, this like sh- let's go ahead and pencil him in as a starter right now. I think he will contend. I think this guy's a veteran. He hasn't played a ton, but he's been around the system. He understands the system, plays hard, uh, good at run support. But I do want to see more of him in coverage. I don't think he's as good of an athlete as uh, Tyree Stevenson. Now, he, I think he's longer and bigger, sure, but I don't think he has quite the athleticism. Uh, but he'll certainly be in the thing of the conversation. I've been really impressed with how he's played the past couple of games when he's finally gotten in and got a chance to, to make some plays. So big shout-out to him as well. Played really well. Um, Kurt, you got anything else, man? Um. I have a few to more. Me, I, I want to touch on the wide receiver play. I thought it was outside of George Pickens and the tight ends. I thought the rest of the receivers really didn't play well. You had some dumb holding calls. Um, Kiaris Jackson has to pull down that fourth down ball. It wasn't the most the most well-thrown ball, but when you get your hands on it, 
Uh, you can't catch it, and then you can't sit there and hold your knee, but be right back on the field three plays later. Got to catch that uh, ball. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought outside of Pickens and the tight ends that we got some below below substandard wide receiver play, in my opinion. Also, that didn't help. Yeah, JT. I, I, I will say well, in defense oh, of of Burton because you mentioned Burton earlier. He was he hadn't been playing with the team. He 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 had been contact traced and hadn't been with the team until like just a couple days before the game. So I don't know how much that impacted his play, but you're you're not wrong in your assessment of how they played as a whole in that game. And one thing, I, the last thing I really want to touch on is um, one thing that really, really bothered me is, yeah, our offense line was struggling throughout the game, but I thought our wide receiver, I mean, our running backs did a terrible job of picking up the blitz and then their pass blocking, especially Kenny McIntosh, someone that, you know, I think in general, he wants more carries, more time on the field. That's the quickest way to get your butt back on the bench is to not pick up the blitz and not protect your quarterback. And that's one thing that Zeus has, a, has done better than any back on our on our team all year long. And that's one of the reasons why he gets more, as much playing time as he does. It's a good observation. Yeah, um, absolutely, man. Um, I, I, since you mentioned wide receivers, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something about George Pickens here real quick. Like, look, say what you want. Like, we know how good he is as an athlete, as as a, as a player, and say what you want about his maturity and, and absolutely his childish behavior at times, like the, the water bottle squirting on a player, an opposing player's face, like just almost unbelievably childish, like unbelievable that I have a player who actually did something like that. So say what you want about his maturity. I won't argue with you there, but I'll also say this for him. That dude plays hard. He cares. He loves his teammates. He wants to win. He may be immature, but that dude cares about winning. He plays hard. He puts it all out there. Like after the interception, Curtis, and the reason I bring this up is after that interception, he could just, just sit there and, and not really do anything, but he went after the ball and ripped that ball out. Right, that dude wants to win. So, yeah, I know we can give him a hard time about being childish, and I absolutely have, and I will continue to do so until he starts to grow up a little bit more. But I will also give the guy credit that he plays hard, he loves his team. He's almost one, also one of those guys. Like he's sure he likes to celebrate when he does something well, but he he celebrates almost even more when his teammates do something well. So you just love to see that from a guy like that. And I I know he's done some dumb things, but uh, I, I still believe that he's a guy that that's growing and maturing, and um, hopefully he'll get there by next year. But really glad to see. Uh, the, the effort he puts out there on the field each and every time he takes the field. All right, Kurt, you got anything else, man? Pickens also, uh, you talked about that strip sack. I thought that was huge, uh, or not the strip sack, but just stripping the guy because that goes from being a uh, a touchback to where we pin them inside their own one, which was huge. And then also I just want to talk about his maturity. You, you know, mentioned how he struggled all year. I thought he showed some maturity in this game where that is in that one position, that one time where they called on sportsmanlike penalty on both him and the other guy. In that situation – I thought George actually – he may have been talking some mad smack because, I mean, we know George does that. But realistically, I was proud of him for walking away after that guy took a shot at his face. Actually, in in that moment, I said, like, why are we calling Austin penalties? I think the Austin penalty thing is such a cop-out. When one guy punches the the other player in the face and the the other player does not respond physically, how are you calling that on both guys? I'm sorry. How are you calling that on both guys? Dumb. You're right, though. You're right, Curl. Let's give him some credit. He he definitely shows some maturity there for sure. Um, All right. You got anything else, man? No, that's about it. All right, cool. Well, I got a couple more things I just want to throw out here real quick. We'll kind of do this rapid fire so we can wrap this thing up. And of course, guys, if there's anything that we missed that you want to talk about, hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. Go to email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com and we will include any and all your questions on this week's mailbag episode. We'll have our little postseason mailbag that we do after each and every college football season. But um, just a couple more here real quick, rapid fire style. Monty Rice was great, guys. I love Monty Rice. He was an incredible leader for this team. Really improved uh, as his career went on here in Athens. 
and and we're gonna miss him. I'm not gonna say that we're not gonna miss this guy. You don't miss a you you don't not miss a presence like that in your locker room. But in terms of like on the field, I know he was really experienced for us, but I think we're gonna be just fine at inside linebacker. You guys know how high I am on Quay Walker's potential. I've been high on his potential since, since he got here in Athens. And N'Kobe Dean is a budding superstar at that position. He was all over the field on Friday against Cincinnati. And he has been all throughout this year as well. I and mean, this is N'Kobe's first year as a starter. And he has improved dramatically from game one this season to where he was there against Cincinnati in the Peach Bowl. And just one play to kind of illustrate what this guy brings to the table. He brings so much to the table. But there was one play that really stood out more than any other that he made against Cincinnati. It was on that final drive. I know we all look at Tyreek Stevenson's play on third and two where he breaks off his his receiver and makes a play on the ball. And then that sets us up getting the ball back with a chance to win the football game. That was probably the play of the game. We've talked about that. But a play that no one else is going to talk about is the play that set up the third and two. It was second and 11 with a minute and 43 seconds left on the clock. And they went with a, a little play action. It was like a fake split zone play. And, and the tight end leaks out into the flat there. Nicobe initially read zone read. You would think in that situation, they're going to run the football, right? They were trying to milk the clock. They were run the football. And he initially read split zone. But he was able to, number one, recognize quickly enough that the tight end was leaking out. They were going a little play action there. And then number two, had the speed and the athleticism to catch up to the tight end and tackle him two yards short of the first down, which again, set up Tyree Stevenson to make that play on third and two, which in itself set up our chance to go down there and kick that 53-yard game-winning field goal. So that's just one small microcosm of what N'Kobe Dean brings to the table. Uh, so if you look at those two guys, Ryan Davis got into the game a little bit as well. I'm really high on the guys who got coming in as true freshmen this year with Xavier Sori and Smail Mondin. We've got some guys that can play linebacker on this team. We'll miss Monty for what he was for this team, but we're going to be just fine inside linebacker. Uh, next up here, real quick, Darnell Washington. This guy has really started to emerge down the stretch, and going into next year, we need to have a plan to start the season to get that guy much more heavily involved in the offense. He was doing nothing but making plays when given the opportunity these past couple of games. And I think that guy is going to go into 2021 and be one of our top playmakers offensively. Really excited about what he can do next year. Now with basically a full year. It wasn't necessarily starting, but a full year under his belt. I also have to mention Adam Anderson here, man. So we've talked all year about how this guy is our most disruptive playmaker on defense, especially rushing the passer, but he just has been too light in the britches to consistently play on standard downs. Well, in this game, he got the opportunity to do that with no Jermaine Johnson and us and obviously wanting to win this game, but also trying to, to prepare a little bit for next year as well, see what guys can do. He got more opportunities to play on standard downs in this game against Cincinnati, a team that really likes to run the football and they play with some physicality. And I thought he held up pretty well in that regard, better than I thought he would. So if you can go into next year and just put on 10 to 15 pounds, he can be a guy that could be a three down outside linebacker and not just be the pass rush specialist that he's been pretty much his entire career here in Athens to this point. So I'm really excited for him and what he can be next year and also what what just the duo of Adam Anderson and Nolan Smith can do, throw in MJ Sherman as well. I think we can be really good at outside linebacker. It's kind of like with inside linebacker. Of course, we're going to miss Aziz Ojulari. That guy was our top pass rusher this year, uh, our most complete player at that position, a great leader for this team. He showed that leadership by coming back and playing this game and not opting out. You can't sit here and say with a straight face that we're not going to miss a guy like that. But we're also not going to be completely devastated because we have talented guys sitting waiting in the wings. Guys, I think, can be big-time playmakers for us next year. Uh, Arian Smith, we, we said this. I know he's. I think he has two catches on the year, but two big catches on this year. And he is going to be a problem 
four teams next year. It's just going to be a matter of finding a way to get this guy on the field because we, we're pretty stacked at receiver. Which I mean, just guys, seriously, think about where we were at receiver in 2019 and where we are now. Kirby Smart and staff have attacked that position of recruiting, and it's night and day where we are uh, compared to where we were in 2019. Where we are now going into 2021, we are in significantly better shape at that position heading into 2021. Excited to see what those guys can do as well. Uh, love the way that the defensive line hustles. I mean, you see this game in a game out, but in a game like this, when they're trying to get the ball to the perimeter, you just see our guys like, like Jordan Davis just running all over the field, chasing guys down. Devontae White's been doing that for years. Uh, Jalen Carter doing that. I mean, we, we, those guys just play really hard. Got, got to give Trey Scott some, some credit, not just for, for getting it done the recruiting trail lately, but also coaching those guys, like develop, developing those guys. A guy like Jordan Davis, who's a former three-star prospect that wasn't really highly recruited at all and now can potentially be a, a first-round draft pick. Speaking of Jordan Davis, I think he's the most important player of the potentially um, draft-eligible guys. I guess Aziz has already declared, Stokes has already declared, but of all those guys, whether it's Tyson Campbell, Jordan Davis, whoever it is that's draft eligible, I mean, I think Jordan Davis is the most important guy to get, to, to get him to come back next year. We just don't have a body like him. We don't have a guy that can come in and replace what he gives us on the roster right now. So I don't know if he's going to come back. I know he's thinking long and hard about it. I, right now, I mean, look, I, I'm not an insider or anything, but from what I hear, it sounds like he's certainly giving it some heavy thought and might even be leaning towards coming back. So that would be massive if we could get him to come back. And finally, we'll just wrap it up on this. Guys, the Cincinnati fans thought they were going to win this. Uh, that was an arrogant bunch of fans, man. Like, even leading up to the game, whether it's uh, you see it on social media and just read on message boards and you're just kind of searching around like, trying to get information on Cincinnati. And look, all fan bases to a degree have some arrogance. And it's, it's tough to like make a blanket statement and say all oh, Cincinnati fans are like this. I hate when people do that because like even George, like we have some idiots in our fan base. Every fan base has them. I don't like to to just stereotype entire fan base based off a few people. But everything I saw in the people at the game, just a really arrogant group of people for a group of five program that hasn't, I mean, had a pretty good solid history, but haven't been an elite program, even at the group of five level. They've been pretty good recently under Luke Fickle, but, and I guess Brian Kelly had him going for a little while, but I mean, they're a solid program, but the arrogance and just the, the certainty that they had there that they were going to win this football game. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I saw some people after the game that were that were crying, walking out of the stadium. And uh, normally, like I, I'm not a, a malevolent dude who, who likes to see people suffer. But when they've spent, you know, uh, the better part of two weeks just talking so much trash and just feeling like like they were going to just dominate us in this game, and that it was it was almost a foregone conclusion that they were the better team and that they were going to win. Uh, I have to say, I mean, I'll admit it. I took a little bit of pleasure in seeing that happen with how much they have been talking trash leading into this game. And a big part of that also has to be, yeah, okay, I, I have to admit, like I've walked out of plenty of games that were close, heartbreaking losses like that in that exact same stadium, by the way, over the past couple of years. So I know what it feels like to to be that team walking out. I've experienced that. So maybe it's just the euphoria of being on the other side in that stadium. That was nice, but also just, just kind of the way that they were they were talking and flapping their gums leading to that game. Uh, I didn't feel too sorry for them when I saw some literally crying walking out of that stadium. So just got to throw that out there. But all right, guys, that does it for stay here on the Glory UGA podcast. Uh, it was an awesome win. Now we head into the uh, long, dark offseason, but it's a little less long, a little less dark. When you, uh, when you win a game like that and end the 2020 season on a high note. And guys, we are not going anywhere. We've got you covered all year long. Football season, offseason, it does not matter. We'll have you covered with your football fix all offseason long. We'll also be talking about a bunch of other Georgia sports programs as well. So make sure to stick with us throughout this offseason. 
I know a lot of podcasts out there go dark during the football offseason, and then they kind of reappear right as this next season is beginning. But uh, And that's great. There's a lot of great podcasts out there, but we will be with you guys all offseason long. We won't be producing four episodes a week. It'll probably be two episodes a week. It, it occasionally might be three, depending on what's going on. As we get closer to spring practice, you might see more than two episodes a week. But we'll have some content for you guys all offseason long. We'll be talking football, recruiting, basketball, baseball, anything and everything in Georgia sports. We will have that covered for you guys during this offseason. And we actually, we're trying to put together, it, nothing's a done deal yet, but we're trying to put together some, some, some big things for you guys in this next calendar year heading into the, the next football season. We've got some big plans that we're trying to work out for you guys. So we'll, we'll certainly keep you guys updated with that and release more information as things clear up a little bit more and become a little bit closer to becoming a reality. So uh, hopefully we'll have some big things for you guys this year. But thanks for listening, guys. I can't tell you how much we appreciate everything that you've done to support this show throughout this this year, this, this COVID-ravaged year. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe, but it actually was our best year ever. Even with COVID and sports being shut down for a couple year, for a couple months, this is the best year this podcast has ever had in our six years of existence. We had our, our, our best football season in terms of impressions and... Uh, it's all about you guys. We, we, we would not be here without you guys. We've told you that a million times, but it always bears mentioning over and over again because it's true. So thank you for everything, guys. Thanks for supporting us. Uh, thanks for spreading the word to friends and family. Thanks for all the ratings and reviews on Apple on Apple Podcasts and all the other uh, platforms that, that we're on out there. Can't tell you guys how much we appreciate that. We try to do our part to bring you the best content that we possibly can, at least our unique, our different kind of brand of Georgia football and Georgia sports content. We try our best to... to to bring you the highest quality content we can and, and bring you the content in a way that's different than, than you get from other podcasts. There's a ton of podcasts out there and they all do a really great job. They're all fantastic. But we have a little bit of a different perspective on things and, and, and try to approach covering Georgia sports in, in, a, in a little bit of a different way. And we're just really glad that at least some of you out there enjoy it. And um, we're going to do everything we can to continue to bring you uh, our content for hopefully years to come. But thanks again, guys. We appreciate it. We love you guys. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.